Welcome to Talking History. I'm Cassie Cooper. I'll be your host on the show. This podcast will cover United States history from the post-Civil War era during westward expansion to the modern era. We'll talk about the political, social, and economic developments that have helped to shape the United States into what it is today. We will analyze the many achievements and mistakes through a historic lens to better understand the events as they occurred and see how they shape our world today. The conditions which surround us best justify our cooperation. We meet in the middle of a nation brought to the verge of moral, political, and material ruin. Corruption rules the ballot box, the legislatures, the Congress, and touches even the bench. The people are demoralized. Most of the states have been forced to isolate the voters at the polling places to prevent universal intimidation and bribery. The newspapers are largely subsidized or silenced. Public opinion, silenced. Homes, covered with mortgages, labor impoverished, and the land is mostly owned by the rich. From the governmental injustice, we breed the two great classes. Tramps and millionaires. Now this sounds like they could be talking about today, although they'd definitely be talking about tramps and billionaires. This was the platform of the Populist Party in 1892, the Omaha Platform. So let's take a moment to define populism so we understand where the Populist Party is coming from. I usually ask my students to do this in class and we start off with, what's the root? What's the root? Well, the root of populism or populist is going to be popular or populist of the people. So this is usually defined as a political approach that is working, striving to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. So it creates a dichotomy. We have the unenfranchised versus the elites. The people, the populace, versus those outside of the people. The elites, which are usually theorized in a, in a hazy kind of manner, right? The elites are against us, but it doesn't always mean the same elites, and it's not always a specific group of people. In the case of the 19th century populist party, what we were mainly talking about was the working class farmers um, against the captains of industry, the robber barons that we've spoken about before on this podcast. And we've got an America that is industrializing. We've got new inventions. We've got businesses, railroads. Everything is being bought up, land, left and right, for use for these new businesses and railroads. We've got more settlers moving west to farm. And all of a sudden, we're getting the interests of farmers and the interests of businesses conflicting. Well, this leads to problems for the farmers. After the Civil War, farmers in the Great Plains faced some major problems. First, the devaluation of the currency. While the dollar value was strong, crop prices plummeted. Farmers made less. To make ends meet, farmers took out more loans to buy more land to produce more. But as anyone knows from the laws of supply and demand, 
If you have the same amount of demand, but more of something, the value of it goes down. With these huge debt loads, banks began to foreclose on farmers. We'll see this again and again in our nation's history. Right? We'll see the problems of the farmers um, in the 1920s during the Great Depression. Like they ne never actually feel that, that roar of the 20s. They, they are always kind of hurting after World War I. We'll see it again um, in the 1930s. In general, um, as we become a more globalized society, it's harder for farmers in a first world nation such as ours to make ends meet when it's so much cheaper for businesses to purchase goods from abroad. We've got the railroads charging whatever they wanted. You might have a farmer that grew cotton, lived in Hammond, Louisiana, and you would ship goods to Bell Chase or New Orleans, maybe $50 a load. It shipped the same goods to Baton Rouge, which is around the same distance, and the railroads might charge them $250 because they had no poster prices. They had no set rules or guidelines. They could charge whatever they wanted. They overcharged farmers mainly for all the crop that was freighted. So, in their attempt to push back against this crippling deflation, they were trying to break this cycle of debt and loss. And they, they tied into this idea of cheap money. Farmers, through groups that we'll speak about in a bit, known as the Granges, began to lobby the feds to print more money, more greenbacks, believing that by hiking the money supply, by creating more money, that would actually inflate prices because the money would be worth less. So they get more cash per sale. So they pushed for the free coinage of silver. Well, the federal government refused. Farmers lobbied to print large amounts of silver money. So at this point, our currency was backed only by gold. Federal government agreed, and they printed more silver coins, but it wasn't enough. Frustrated by a lack of progress, frustrated by a feeling that no one was on their side and that their concerns weren't getting through in Washington, D.C., that banks, railroads, businesses would just continue on in their corrupt ways, that farmers would continually be locked in this vicious cycle of debt and credit, they organized for change. They formed union-like groups that were seeking reform and change from their strength in numbers. We start with the Grange. This was founded by farmer Oliver Kelly. It was originally designed as a social outlet. So if you think about it, when you're on a farm out in the West in the 19th century, your closest neighbor might be 150 acres away from you. You didn't have phones, definitely didn't have the internet. You had no way to communicate with them. You were isolated. You had just your own family to deal with. So you didn't have necessarily ways for your children to go to school. You needed them to work on the farm anyway. So the Grange steps in as a social outlet and educational service for farmers, teaching them how to organize, how to sponsor state legislation to try to regulate the railroads. So on the state level, the Granges had a lot of success with passing laws, uh, especially in Illinois, that helped to stymie the power of the railroad companies and prevent them from overcharging. However, by 1886, some of these cases had been shifting through the legal system and made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court as railroad companies contested the findings on the state level. 
And by 1886, the Supreme Court rules that the Granger laws were unconstitutional because they were attempting to control interstate commerce, which, since 1824 in the Gibbons versus Ogden case, had been deemed the responsibility of the federal government and something that we find in the Constitution, right? the interstate trade that is controlled by the federal government. So the Granges, um, while having initial success in the long run, find that they need to take their laws to the federal level if they want to have further successes. And from there, they have an offshoot of the Grange called the Farmers Alliance, which is almost specifically political. It includes farmers and sympathizers of farmers and would send speakers to teach farmers about loans, interests, tariffs, etc. You know, anything they could. In 1892, these groups come together with others and form the Populist Party, the People's Party. Born primarily out of the farmers' quest for reform and to give the people a greater voice in the government. And their key components were to increase the money supply, to enforce inflation, to help the farmers. So the free silver movement, to initiate a graduated income tax so that richer would pay more and the poor would pay less, a federal loan program to simplify credit, weaken banks' term limits, and reforms on immigration, labor, and elections. This takes off, at least outside of the cities, where you would want to have laboring groups working together, so the farmers who are laborers and the people working industries in cities, the two plans did not always coincide. If you're a working class laborer at a factory, you don't want more money printed because then what you are paid is worth less. So this was a key problem in the Populist Party's agenda. And while they did well in the elections of 1892 and 1894 and their standard of bimetallism, that's backing our money with both gold and silver to create cheap money, that became the central issue of the election of 1896. You had your silverites, those who supported bimetallism, versus your gold bugs who didn't want to change the way things were. Hoping that they could defeat the GOP, the populists and the Democrats actually unite behind a Democratic candidate, William Jennings Bryan, who though a Democrat, was a Democrat in name only. He had adopted and spoke ad nauseum on the causes of populism. His play inside of the Democratic Party would change them forever. William Jennings Bryan gave one of the most famous political speeches in United States history as he voiced the concerns of the farmers in their farmers' revolt against the status quo. This is referred to as his Cross of Gold speech. We'll listen to a short excerpt. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standards of this state, we will fight them. One second. It sounds like the Blue Angels or some other Navy Air Force is flying overhead. <laughs> All right, we'll try that again. The producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Of gold. There we go. You shall not crucify us on a cross of gold. This is 
biblical uh, references there. Uh, William Jennings Ryan was known as the boy orator. He had been very famous for his grafting of uh, speeches since a young age. And I will also note, like, what we're seeing there, he's comparing the working classes as the business classes, right? Stating that we should not only view those who own business as business people, when each person that works inside of that industry is part of that business, is integral to that business. So he views them all as business people. I mean, it's very interesting that this is that same time period where we're seeing the birth of socialist movements around the world as well, right? As the growth of industry, as the second industrial revolution makes really powerful corporations and later on conglomerates, we're going to see social movements pushing against that to try to bring some power back uh, to the individuals. This combination of Democrats and populists under William Jennings Bryan was not enough to win the election of 1896, and they were defeated. And though they will run William Jennings Bryan again in 1900, he has still held on to his platform of free silver. And by this point, we've moved into our age of imperialism. We've completed successfully our first major war against a foreign power, the Spanish-American War. Not necessarily our first, because we've already had many successful wars against the British time and time again. <laughs> um, but we have now created an extra-continental empire with our acquisition of territories, uh, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, Guam, right, and our nominal control over Cuba. So free silver is less on the plate for most Americans at this point. There are many aspects of populism that linger on. You'll see this rebirth of the idea that the common man can affect government, right? This kind of tie back to Jacksonian principles of democracy, where you see that corruption and business and politics will have to be accounted for. So the death of populism leads to the birth of progressivism. I remember it was the presidencies of Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson that sought to change our nation from uh, ineptitude in government and political corruption in government into uh, accountability. We will see the modern Democratic Party platform take shape in a similar way to the one that was crafted by William James Bryan. And we will see the introduction of the ideas of direct election of senators to the progressives platforms, which they will achieve with the 17th Amendment and to presidential term limits. All right, after this short detour back into the 19th century, we're going to be back next week with a resumption of corruption. Yes, the progressive era is over, World War I is over, and we're into the roaring 20s, where a return to normality means a return to graft and good times. See you then on Talking History of Big Coop. We'll see you next time on Talking History of Big Coop. Remember to subscribe and tell your friends.